another Dishcast. And this week, my old friend, sparring partner, and uh, world famous journalist, Glenn Greenwald, joins us. Uh, it's, it's a real thrill to have you, Glenn. And uh, I don't really need to go into all the details of Glenn Greenwald's illustrious career, but he is currently completely cancelled all over the place. Uh, a situation that he <laughs> finds, of course, deeply unsettling. Um, uh, but anyway, welcome, Glenn. Nice to see you. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here in part because I'm hoping to get some therapy over the trauma of being well, it's canceled important. from one of the most canceled people on the planet. Um, yeah. Well, the and thing also, is, I though, love the Dishcast. It's oh, thank you. I yes. appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start, Glenn. Um, the way I've started many of these things, which is just trying to help people understand the people I'm interviewing you a little, uh, interviewing a little bit better. Tell me about where you were born and grew up, how your childhood, adolescence, you think, shaped you in a way and, and leads to what you're doing today. Is there anything that you remember that really you think set you on this path? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I grew up, so I was born in New York and I moved to like a suburb of Fort Lauderdale uh, when I was an infant and grew up there until I was 18 and went to college. It was kind of like a working class, lower middle class home. My parents divorced when I was very young. My mother worked, you know, like hourly jobs at McDonald's and stuff to support us. Although back then you had like a decent standard of living, even if you worked just one job at an hourly rate, so it was sort of like still a middle and lower middle class. Whereas now you have to work three jobs at Walmart to, you know, get by. Back then it was a little different, although we still struggled. And the, you know, I, I would say like the two defining elements of my childhood were I had parents who were largely apolitical and to the extent they were political, they had very banal politics and fortunately did not influence me politically at all. Instead, I had uh, a set of maternal grandparents who lived like four blocks from where we lived and they were deeply political. They, you know, their, the defining event in their life was the Great Depression my grandmother grew up in a very rich family and lost everything and so became poor overnight. And they became these kind of like standard Jewish socialists. They loved FDR. They were New Dealers. Um, and just like instilled within in me these values of left-wing politics, of resisting McCarthyism, the Cold War. They hated Nixon. Like my earliest memory of an election is them cheering for McGovern. But also my grandfather was on the city council. He ran for the city council. It was like in a sleepy town of like 30,000 people. But he made it super exciting because he like went in with guns blazing and said he was going to represent the like increasingly diverse homeowners against the power center of the city, which were these rich Jews who had gone down to South Florida to from New York to to retire, and they all lived in these rich. This is your this is your grandfather this split. Yeah, my grandfather. I'm sorry. They, this my is your grandfather. You're talking about. Um, yeah, my grandfather okay. who ran for city council. And so he used to take me to these meetings were they and they green were super walls? exciting because he would like go in and just Greenwalds. Yeah. My, his name, his, he ran under his initials LL. And so like they would, the, his campaign motto was give him hell LL. And so he would like go in and just like <laughs> yell at everybody, accuse everybody of corruption. It was like high drama. They went from like seven old retirees talking about zoning issues to like the room packed with people excited about the conflict that he brought. And then when he retired, because he just was too old and couldn't do it anymore, he wasn't done with his vendettas. So he like recruited me to run for city council to like basically carry out the rest of his war for him when I was 17. 
there was like a big lawsuit about whether I could run because I was get 17. So you were part of political dynasty. A dynasty, yes. Although, <laughs> yeah, but I didn't win. I almost won. I came in fourth. The first three won, but it was a very it was a losing experience. That was my first taste in politics, and I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. But he very much like shaped, just like who you should speak on behalf of and how to view power and like a willingness to kind of stand up for the things you believed in, even if it was a lot easier not to, that was definitely all from him. And then of course, like being gay and like the, you know, I kind of came of age in like the early eighties, which is the era of Reagan and the moral majority and no one ever talking about homosexuality, except in connection with this terrorizing lethal virus that became the AIDS epidemic. You know, like the feeling of just being rejected by society before you have a chance to even get your bearings about who you are was definitely a, you know, major, probably the predominant experience, like formative experience in my childhood. Yeah, we're roughly the same generation in that sense, that both of us came out or were grappling with our well, you're sexual older. orientation. <laughs> Quite older. Okay, yes. Am I? How old are you? <laughs> you 53. I'm answering that question. You're like, are what, 71 now? Yeah, I'm I'm four years older than you, um, even though I'm not anywhere near okay. as well preserved. There you go. It's so like the, the new generation. Well, I'm just thinking you're about you're not Gen X. It's basically you're a boomer. I'm uh, Gen X. I'm I'm so on the border. Sorry. Uh oh, fuck you, Glenn. I I. <laughs> okay. Yep. But look, we were gay men in our early twenties. <laughs> let's put it that way, and we were both facing this particular okay. health crisis. Now, I was a little bit closer to the center of it than you were because I was a little older. But um, but that was a strange time because at the same time I had incredible energy from that period because it was actually a liberating period for gay men and women. Many of us were coming out earlier than previous generations had come out. And we were on the map in the early 90s for the first time. And some of us were writing about the stuff in the 80s. And yet we were also facing this incredible catastrophe of, of death. And uh, did you see the uh, It's a Sin show that just was on uh, HBO Max? I didn't, know. Oh, well, it's, it captures that generation very well. It's a kind of happy, sad generation because also the, the time of all that amazing um, high-energy uh, disco music too, which was kind of an anthem for that excitement that people felt in the 80s. It's just a very conflicted period, I think. Um, but did you come out as a kid or were you, did you come out in? No, no, not, not as a kid. And I think that was the problem, right? Like if I had been, you know, 17, 18, 19, and like had the capacity to start having the kind of courage to come out and explore who I was, it might've been a little easier, but I was what, 13 in 1981. So I like lived those early teen years at the start of the AIDS epidemic. And so that was like right when I was mm -hmm. articulating and realizing the fact that I was gay and I didn't really have the ability to talk to anyone about it or to seek out, you know, people who could guide me through the gay community. I wasn't old enough yet. And so the only thing I was hearing about what it meant to be gay was the imagery was, you know, people being emaciated and dying terrible deaths alone in their rooms, stigmatized, ostracized. And I think that was what was so difficult was, you know, you kind of, internalize right of the way that it's like a metaphorical sickness you have in you because society has condemned it so harshly morally but then to have it linked to a physical sickness as well and have that be my first 
understanding of what this thing was that I knew I had, that I think was difficult. And it wasn't until like I was 18, 17, 18, I like went to work at a kids camp, like before my senior year of college and met this lesbian couple that was like a few years older. And they like adopted me and took me to gay bars. And, you know, that was when I first started becoming excited by it and feeling like it was part of a kind of culturally transgressive, interesting thing to be proud of that would enable me to be happy. Um, and then in the early 90s, I went to NYU law school and I started going up to, to act up meetings where the energy was incredibly combative and smart. It was like very smart, devoted activism. Um, and yeah, so that's, that really changed how I saw it. But those first years and like early adolescence were, were very difficult. Yeah, they always are for everybody. And I think but the gay stuff has never been part of your real, uh, as I remember, anyways, I, as I know, uh, a political uh, writing. Or you, you tend not to have written about this. In fact, I, recently I've seen when you made a couple of offhand remarks about some aspects of the whole LGBTQ ideology, uh, people said, well, he has no stake in this, as if no one knows you're gay, which I find it kind of bizarre. <laughs> but it seems true, right, on Twitter. No one seems to understand that you're a gay man. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I, my profile pictures of myself, my husband and our two children, which we do deliberately because in Brazil, it's an important political statement to make to live your lives openly. David was, you know, more or less famously detained at Heathrow as part of the Snowden story yeah, and I remember in that. the film about Snowden that won the Oscar. But yeah, for sure. Like a lot of people who have only gotten to know me in the last few years who started paying attention to politics because of Trump. Yeah, they think of me just like as a straight white guy. And I want to talk a little bit about that, too, living as an openly gay couple in Bolsonaro's Brazil. What, what do we in the U.S. not understand about Bolsonaro? What are we, just, what are we failing to get that, that, that the, the media is, is sort of slightly distorting for us? Is there a, tell, tell me what it's like to live in that country. I mean, unfortunately, the Western media depiction of Bolsonaro has been so confused and misleading because the Western press thinks very rarely about Latin America. And so the only way they could understand him is through reference to Trump, and he became Trump of the tropics. Mm -hmm. And he does model himself after Trump in like very superficial ways. So people just assumed, oh, well, he's called that. His kids, who are politicians, hang out with, you know, Donald Jr. and Steve Bannon. So he must just be like the Brazilian Trump. And it's so misleading. It so understates the danger. You know, one of the reasons why I didn't think Trump was such a grave danger to American democracy isn't because I thought he himself wasn't dangerous, but because I thought American institutions were so powerful after 235 years or so much concentrated wealth devoted to stability. I think you saw that, right? Like a lot of institutions united to prevent Trump from any radical incursions that he might have made. Whereas Brazil's democracy is not 235 years. It's only 200 and it's only uh, 35 years. It just got out of a dictatorship in 1985, a very brutal one for 21 years. So half the population lived through it, including Bolsonaro, who was in the military at the time and has spent the last 30 years saying that he thinks military dictatorship is a superior form of government to democracy. He doesn't believe in democracy. He has said that explicitly without fail. He has militarized the government with these right-wing factions who very much see things the same way. And anti-gay venom, anti-gay animus is an extremely important part 
of the Bolsonaro movement in a way that isn't for these new right figures like Trump or Marine Le Pen or Nigel Farage or those kind of people mm-hmm. who either don't talk about gay rights or even try and weaponize it against their main cause of immigration and, and Islam. And so he's really more of like a throwback to those kind of autocratic, far right, like Pinochet leaders. I think he's more like uh, Duterte in the Philippines or even General Sisi in Egypt than he is like mm-hmm. new right leaders in the West. Um, and, you know, when David and I, I mean, David entered Congress as a replacing the only other openly gay member of Congress who fled Brazil in fear of his life when Bolsonaro was elected because he was getting so many very detailed personal threats because he was one of the main enemies of the Bolsonaro movement. So David got a lot of attention because he became the only openly gay member of Congress from a socialist party. And then when I started doing my reporting that was so destabilizing to Bolsonaro, he and I as a couple became like prime enemy number one of this movement that among so many other things is viscerally anti-gay. And the fact that we were married or married have two kids, we're presenting this image of a healthy, fulfilled family life, which is the reality that we have that was very at odds with the image they were trying to convey to young gay youth, which is you're broken, you're going to be unhappy, you're going to be miserable if you don't abandon your sickness. We became a huge visceral threat to them. And, you know, all the threats that you would imagine to our security, to our safety, you know, were all very acute. Why do you think that the anti-gay venom that still has purchase uh, in Brazil has actually not been that front and center of the American or British or French uh, right, or even the German far right. Do you have any explanation for that? Is it just, is it something about South American culture or Brazilian culture that, that, has, that has kept that stigma attached? I mean, one obvious answer is, you know, that Brazilians um, are much more religious than the secular West. They're deeply mm-hmm. evangelical. They used to be Catholic, but mostly elapsed Catholic. Catholic Brazil is, has the largest Catholic population of any country on the planet. But there's been this huge evangelical wave over the past, say, 20 to 30 years. It's very mm-hmm. fervent. And Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. although he still identifies as a Catholic, is very much a part of that. Um, so that religious kind of ferocity makes them more receptive than, say, most people in the West. Um Brazil is also very patriarchal, um, kind of traditional, despite the reputation of Carnival and Rio and all that. Um, but I, you know, I think ultimately it's kind of just, you know, six dozen of one, half dozen of the other, because mm-hmm. what Marine Le Pen and Nigel Farage and Donald Trump want you to focus on enemies too. They want you to focus on immigrants and Muslims and, you know, people who are different in other ways. Bolsonaro doesn't have a lot of immigrants coming to Brazil. There's not really a big Muslim population there that doesn't work. So it, gays become a much better scapegoat but it's Mm. still similar in pattern it's just kind of what what you fill in the gaps with but there are established protections for gay people in brazil right i mean you you have the right to marry yeah i mean ironically you know when i went there in 2005 met david we couldn't come to the u.s at the time because there was the defense of marriage act that barred the federal government from granting any rights, spousal rights to same-sex couples that opposite-sex couples were entitled to, including immigration rights. Whereas Brazil, amazingly, back in 2005, had a judicially created rule that if you're a citizen and fall in love with the same-sex foreign national, you have the automatic right to get them a green card, the green card equivalent, which is what what I got. So yeah, in in a lot of ways, it was ahead of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, 
gay marriage. I is remember not because legal. I remember because kind of judicial. Yeah, I remember because the two we, we once all got together because I was in I in the U.S. married to Aaron. Um, I still didn't have the right to petition to become a citizen of the U.S. or even a green card. Well, well, until like uh, last the last decade. Um, Whereas, so I think the well, US it was in 2013. Yeah, it was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013. And you had, you had the same problem. The Defense of Marriage Act said that the federal government could not recognize your marriage, even if you got validly married in the state for immigration purposes. And I also had the HIV question, which is which wasn't removed until right. 2011, in which anybody with HIV, or at least was honest about HIV, couldn't enter the country at all. Um, how is how? I mean, your husband has gone into politics in this incredibly forthright way you i mean one of your closest political allies and friends was assassinated uh what two years ago now or was it as soon as yeah march of 2018 uh i mean the amount of physical courage required just to stand up in public the way that you and david have is uh seems to me to be uh quite remarkable certainly something that a lot of rather easy critics over here haven't really I don't think given you credit for. Um, do you have any security uh, particular arrangements around your home? Does David have to take special precautions? Um, how do you navigate that? Yeah, so well, after, you know, Marielle Franco was her name. She was a black lesbian woman from the favela. David's a black gay man from the favela. They sat right next to each other in the city council, member of the same party. So when she got assassinated brutally, she had four bullets pumped into her head while she was riding in her car from an event back home. We both began riding around in armored vehicles. Um, and then once I started doing the reporting, we had both to have the full kind of protocol of security. I haven't left my house about armed guards and an armored vehicle in, I guess, like a year and a half now, nor has David. David has his provided by Congress. Mine's provided privately. It was provided by the intercept now i provide it myself um you know our home got kind of turned into a fortress because the, the threat of political violence in brazil is very real mm. you know and we were getting like really creepy emails mm. like here we know where your kids go to school here's a picture of your front door here's a picture of the license plate we know you use to take your kids to school here's your kids names we're going to kill them we're going to kill you you know it's things you take seriously um but, you know, we did go through this note in reporting. I don't think I could have handled that. I mean, I think I would have, well, at least I would have retreated somewhat and not been quite so forthright. I mean, you had the Snowden question, which was so huge for a while. And then then obviously you're reporting about Bolsonaro and, and the corruption involved. Um, what you and yet your mood seems to have been feisty and the same and very hard to distinguish from where you always used to be. Where do you get this uh, tenacity, as it were, this composure? Because it's certainly beyond me. You know, I don't know. I, it's like, you know, sometimes I wish I didn't have it quite as much. Um, you know, it's not, I don't want to pretend that it's not difficult for us or that, you know, it wasn't uh, tense and even scary at times. I mean, I do think having gone through the Snowden story together, David and I, well, you know, he was detained in London, threatened with arrest under a terrorism law. That was really scary. Um, I carried it around with me for almost a year on my person. 
you know, thumb drives containing hundreds of thousands, if not more, top secret documents from the most secretive agency of the world, the most powerful government that tons of governments would have loved to get their hands on. And people wanted to know what we were doing. They were eavesdropping on us. That was hard too. But this was of a different level because the government that was angry at us wasn't thousands of miles away across an ocean, but was, you know, down the block and everywhere we went. Um, I think that like once you make the decision that you're going to undertake these risks, it almost becomes like you vow that you're going to do it. You make the commitment to do it. People have an expectation for what you're going to deliver. And then you kind of just have to take all the precautions you can take at the beginning and then tell yourself you're not going to think about the risks and dangers because if you do, you're going to get paralyzed with fear. And you just have to train yourself to wake up every day, know that it's there, not focus on it, know that you've done everything you could to minimize it and protect against it and go about your work. And as long as you feel enough passion and conviction about the cause that you're working on, somehow you find a way to keep doing it. You know, it's why people go to war. It's why journalists go to wars. Lots of people do dangerous things. And I think that's the secret to it. Yeah. And I, 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 I will say that I'm struck by the difference between journalists who have been in that sort of situation as you are or have been reporting war stories or putting themselves at danger and the current climate in so many of these newsrooms in which they are terrified of someone saying a word that will wound uh, or uh -huh. allegedly wound someone there's the, 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 the journalism that i grew up in and remember was the journalism you're talking about it was not this incredibly defensive uh uh, controlling uh, attempt to create narratives as opposed to expose un, un, inconvenient truths or facts about government or or major organizations. What happened? Is it is it what happened? Where, where did when did journalists stop being these unpleasant, you know, completely uh, self confident but utterly disreputable people who went around finding things other people didn't want to find out about? And tend to have this. I mean, I remember the old Fleet Street hacks. You know, they would—they were the ones that had the worst language. They were the ones most in touch with regular people. They were the ones least offended by anything. That's why we liked them. That's why they went out there and were able to talk to people. And now there's this incredibly precious upper middle class, secluded, uh, Ivy educated uh, coterie, really. Um, in which, in which that kind of journalism that you did and, and are still doing to some extent uh, is, is, is absent. Um, you have Donna McNeil, who's done an amazing job on COVID and been all over the world as a reporter. He gets fired because a, 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 a student from an from a, from a upper-class family and a private school thinks he's not uh, completely PC. What happened? When did this happen, Glenn? Yeah, it's so it's so dispiriting and so interesting and so tragic, really, because I really love journalism. You know, like I believe in it so much at its highest expression and admire so much the people who have done it well. I mean, I like, you know, when I was growing up, those are like my childhood heroes among them were like Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers story. And I was obsessed with all the president's men, the film and the book. And you know, really, I love the ACLU, like what they were back in the late 70s and when they were like representing neo-Nazis and the right to march through Skokie and taking on so many eras and, you know, risking so much to do it for a principle, like for a cause. And I think one of the things is that you put your finger on 
is, you know, we do want journalists to be cantankerous. We do want them to be unpleasant, but we want them to be cantankerous and unpleasant toward people in power to, mm. you know, the upper classes, to the kind of ruling class. That's the job. That's what makes them noble. And that's always what journalism has been. It's been like an outsider profession. People who often, you know, they didn't, usually journalists didn't go to Harvard and Yale or like $60,000 a year prep schools. Um, well, Donald McNeil, for example, started out as a copy boy. I mean, he, he, start, copy boy. he started yeah. out right there at, at, in the mailroom. And, and that's yeah. that tradition um, to be scuppered by a, a woke teenager. Just, I, I, just, I, I, I don't know how you're editor of the New York Times and let that happen. And not just the woke teenagers, but like the, the grown teenagers who dominate that newsroom who demanded it as well. But, you know, I think... Um, so I think that's part of it is I think that like journalists now, because they come from wealthier backgrounds, the national media, because they strive to elevate themselves to those circles, have no interest in being cantankerous or disruptive or adversarial to those who wield power. Like, Andrew, when is the last time you heard any of them, like from the Brooklyn online media culture, talking about the CIA or the NSA or hedge funds or the, they're obsessed with like what? powerless, obscure people are doing, you know, like the chef at Mar-a-Lago posted QAnon stuff on his like Facebook page or some woman who's just like an old woman in Florida inadvertently posted an event that supposedly the Russians engineered and then CNN goes to her house and like confronts her or some 4chan teenager produces like a racist. Those are the, that's what they do. They act on behalf of the power, the powerful against those who wield none, but who are in some way defiant or out of line, which is why I regard them as like tattletales and hall monitors. Um, but the other thing is, I think the broader cultural change, which is captured, I think, best by the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, that is generational for sure, where people got encouraged to believe that as parents, their primary duty was to protect their children from anything uncomfortable or harmful or unpleasant. And I know as a parent now, there is an instinct to do that. And you have to prevent yourself from constantly shielding your kids from anything that it might be upsetting because they don't develop the skills to cope with those things. And so they go from these like overprotective parents to college, which is basically just like extended childhood where the, where the, you know, uh, RAs and the deans are there to just be their surrogate parents and comfort them. And they look at them as like customers because they're paying tons of money and the customer is always right. And I always thought like people like you and John Chait, who talked a lot about college culture and how crazy it was, were being misdirected and misguided because I thought like, okay, they're going to outgrow themselves at that. I'm not really worried about a 21 year old at Oberlin is thinking or doing. The problem is they now have this extended adolescence, these millennials and Gen Z people do, obviously speaking generally into their 20s and even in the 30s where they get to the workplace and HR becomes their new college administrator who replaced their mommy and daddy. And they, they are incapable of, 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 of accepting or handling anything. They're like the princess and the pea. You know, if there's a little pea under the 17th mattress, they're like, they can't sleep and they demand that somebody come and get it. And it's such the antithesis of what you need to be a journalist who is supposed to, question pieties and accept the tax and confront power and all the retaliation and recrimination that that entails 
they're so fragile. They're little babies who just can never be around any ideas that make them even slightly uncomfortable. They, it's an HR event every time it happens, as you know better than anybody. <laughs> well, I did go through that to some extent. But here's the, here's the other side of it. Like, why don't the editors who aren't of that generation tell them to shut the fuck up and tell them, no, what are you doing? Stop this or fire a couple of people who are behaving in that fashion. Uh, and yet, when you look at, when you read what Don McNeil wrote about uh, Gene Baquette, however, you, I, I think that's the way you pronounce his name, um, it, it, it's this complete surrender of their own editorial authority, their own right to edit that newspaper and magazine however the fuck they want. I'm, I'm, part of me thinks there was an economic dimension to this because, you know, about 10 years ago or so, uh, you know, the economics of media until Trump saved them were incredibly dodgy. And the way they managed to get page views and, and generate all these clicks was by hiring a whole bunch of just out of college kids who were cheap because they fired a lot of the older guys who were much more expensive and women, of course. Um, and so the whole newsroom everywhere, I saw this at the Atlantic, I saw this all over the place, it became weirdly skewed generationally towards 20-somethings. And their entire culture, which had never met reality, was just continued. And then the older generations were just guilt-tripped into accepting everything these younger people said. And also there's this also a cult of youth in which age and experience, I mean, I know I'm completely uh, uh, the wrong person to make this argument, but the age and experience actually do count for something in general. Some a certain amount of judgment emerges over years. More experience can lead you to have better news judgment than if you're just entering it. What do, you, do, you, do you see the parallels that I'm making here? I think, I think the economics is a really important part of this framework, of this dynamic. Um, even, you're right, Trump saved a lot of media outlets. Pretty much every MSNBC host was on the verge of being fired in 2015 because no one was watching their shitty shows. Why would you? Um, and then suddenly this like new Hitler emerged that they got everybody to be afraid of and fear is a really strong impulse in us, right? It's a survival instinct. It's embedded in our DNA. And the more you have of it, the more you want to know that you're being protected. You want to be told about the thing that's threatening you. So they all started watching cable like CNN and MSNBC and buying subscriptions to the New York Times and donating money to the ACLU. But even without that, Andrew, even with that, there's still, you read every week almost that, you know, BuzzFeed and Vox and Huffington Post, they're laying off people by the dozens and the hundreds sometimes. It's a collapsing media industry. And so if you're a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old kind of just entering the profession, or even if you're kind of in the middle of your career and you don't have a large platform or following the way you and I have been able to develop over our careers that let us go to anywhere and bring a large portable readership, which is value. If you don't have that, the last thing you want to do is stick your head up and question any of their orthodoxies. I can't tell you how many times during the Russiagate uh, debacle, when I was writing my skepticism, pointing out media errors, I would get so many messages from young journalists at CNN, New York Times, NBC, Washington Post saying, I agree with you so much. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. I wish I could, but I fear I would lose my job if I did that. I just don't feel like I can. So the financial component, because if you're seeing these jobs disappear, the last thing you want to do is stick your head up and give the next editor a reason to immediately throw your resume in that trash can because a bunch of people said all kinds of negative stuff about you on Twitter because you stepped out of line just a little bit. That's what's that's one part of the repressive component but the other part is what you said which is this is amazing me 
you have like these 50 year old, 45 year old, 55 year old experienced editors who are supposed to be the supervisors, like the kind of people managing these newsrooms, keeping it on track. And they're the ones most petrified. Why? They have kids in college. They have a mortgage. They have a big salary. They know that these millennials specialize in getting people fired. They revel in it. It's like the thing that arouses them. It's like they don't get their erections from sex. They get it from <laughs> like destroying people's reputations. And so if you're 50, the last thing you want in this media environment is to lose your job, lose your like secure benefits and salary. And I have seen, Andrew, so many people I've known for so many years in journalism in that kind of, in our kind of general age range, after the George Floyd killing, especially, but even before that, starting to talk with a vocabulary that they've never once used and still don't know what it means <laughs> yes. and talking about issues in a way that they never would have, like, you know, like John Brennan being on MSNBC oh, yes. yesterday. I don't know if you saw this clip and he's I like, did. I'm embarrassed to be a white man. You think that ever came out of the fucking mouth of the CIA director, the lifelong CIA goon in his entire life, but that's the climate he is in and he now needs to acquiesce to that. And so he, he does because he wants his job. And you, and, and you pointed out, I would point out too, because we, this is one issue where we were both at one in, in the two thousands is that this man is a war criminal. Anyway, if he can't be ashamed of authorizing the torture of people without any evidence that they should have been captured in the first place. And now he's ashamed of his gender and his, his, his skin color. I mean, it's absurd. And the fact that these people give Andrew, do you remember, Andrew, such do you a remember pass? that you and I worked together to basically alone prevent Obama from nominating Brennan as yeah. the CIA director early on in Obama's administration when he really wanted to because we found and screamed about his long history of supporting rendition and torture. And they made Brennan instead the national security advisor of the White House counterterrorism yeah. officer or whatever and then four years later made him the cia director but that was something that i mean this is somebody who has a zillion reasons to be embarrassed by and hated by liberals for none of which they either know or care about but instead you know this is what he's saying he he feels embarrassed about and there is something just weird about john brennan being this hero uh for uh, the millennials who watch msnbc it's just absolutely bizarre and also you might we, we notice people like um uh, Avril Haines, who is now head of the CIA, another person deeply implicated in the torture regime. Uh, the same with Gina Haspel, obviously. The previous, it's as if all the architects of the torture program, not only did they not suffer any consequences, they were actively and actually promoted uh, to run many of the top jobs in our national security. And no one ever even asked them about that. Not in any of these congressional hearings do they bring it up. Uh, no one in the journalism seems to point this out. There is a kind of, and I mean, the other thing that's particularly galling to me this week, for some reason, is the, is is the Chris Cuomo Andrew Cuomo thing. The most, probably the one of the single most embarrassing moments. I mean, if it weren't wasn't embarrassing for you a year ago, it shouldn't be embarrassing you. Now, I mean, if he's if you're going to be an adjunct to your brother's PR machine and play it this cute and lie also about the stuff that he did, um, I just don't I just don't know what CNN thinks it's doing if it if if it's actually promoting that. But apparently, and this I'd also argue back against you. I don't think this stuff is that unprofitable. I think if you create an audience as the New York Times does, 
of, of, of people expecting every story to follow a particular narrative, and you keep feeding them that, uh, you might have quite a successful model. I mean, you, there is... There's right, that's what Fox News and Matt Drudge showed, right, right. and Rush Limbaugh. But let me, let me put you that. I, uh, how, do you, how do you feel about going on Tucker Carlson, who surely is also someone who is, is not on the level at all with the Trump administration, did many, many things and said many, many things that were utterly incompatible with, with the truth and with uh, a, a journalistic uh, culture of uh, non-deference towards authorities. I'll, I'll answer that, and I want to answer that. Let me just make one quick point about something you said. Um, this idea that, for example, Avril Hines and John Brennan and all these people who are involved in torture and rendition, and by the way, even the Iraq war, like if I mention your name, liberals will immediately mention your support for the Iraq war, even though you've done probably more to renounce it and apologize for it and dissect and self-criticize than almost anybody I know. And yet all these other people like Joe Biden <laughs> and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry who were critical, they weren't writing articles, they were voting in the Senate to authorize it, to say nothing of all these national security people, but also torture and rendition and Guantanamo and like all this dirty, sending people off to Bashar al-Assad and, and Mubarak's dungeons to be tortured. That's what I was saying earlier is, if any of those people like use a pronoun wrong or, you know, too aggressively ask someone out on a date, they'll all go insane for three months and demand that they be fired. But this stuff that's actually about where true power resides, they don't pay the slightest attention. They don't, they don't care what the CIA or the FBI or the NSA are doing. They don't think about it. And to the extent they do, they think those agencies are noble. Is that's this one of the things that Trump resistance politics did? Do you want me to answer about Tucker? Do you well, want to go no, I, wanna, I just wanted to make another point about that, which is wokeness is is kind of a distraction, is it not? I mean, it's, it's, it's totally. absorbed so much energy and it's so, I think it's just a very simple question. You can watch someone get destroyed, which is always great viewing. I mean, the Romans went to the, went to the uh, you know, stadium to watch human beings being torn apart. And now we go on Twitter to look at other people being torn apart, often for no good reason at all. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's part, but, but it's harder. It's harder to take on not just the powers that be, but the powers within your own coalition. I mean, I've, to be honest, I've been just a little shocked at how just goo-goo, rah-rah, the entire media has been about Biden so far. Now, look, he's new. You should give people some time to figure out what they're doing. He's, he's not done anything terribly bad, but the, this, this compulsion to celebrate, to fawn, to create puff pieces, uh, I mean, or even down to censoring old articles they did that were slightly critical, as you saw with the Kamala Harris profile, where they had to remove the one thing from the old. And they did it by stealth as well. well is, is, this, is it because they believe, and this is what I really think is going on, that the role of journalism is to, is to affirm a moral position and to advance the, what's quote-unquote the right side of history and not to be these uh, attack every authority, attack every sort of power, put everybody under the scrutiny of an asshole journalist. And that's, it seems to me they've gotten religion in a way. They want to see themselves as reforming society rather than actually just exposing it wherever corruption or power or abuse of power is around. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, Yeah, that... you know, I think this is why I was always so concerned with what was happening 
in the name of stopping Trump. I mean, obviously, anyone has to do is look at anything I've been saying or doing in the last 15 years to understand that I was not supportive of the Trump ideology or the Trump agenda. There were certain things he did that I thought were healthy just to inject into the discourse. But obviously, that is not my ideology, to put it mildly. But I was still nonetheless very concerned about what people were doing in responding to it and the way that that would linger. So I think one of the things that happened in journalism is that they convinced themselves that Trump was like this Hitlerian figure. If you don't want to go that far, like that he was a grave and existential threat to democracy, something I didn't think for the reasons I said earlier. But even if you think that, it's perfectly fine to then say we're going to, as a as a, a free press, be a, a check against authoritarian incursions into basic civic rights. I think it's a totally legitimate function of, of journalism. But they went so much further than that. They, they really started aligning themselves, viewing themselves as partners and comrades of whatever institutions were opposed to Trump, which meant the security state, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and especially the Democratic Party. And I think they started identifying so much through the prism of these other institutions who were doing the only thing they thought mattered, which was battling Trump, that they morphed into what they kind of always were this a little bit, but they were resisting it. Now they don't resist it. I think they're really just self-identified as Democrats and as opponents of the current iteration of the Republican Party, and that affects their journalism. I also think there's a financial incentive, which is that you know, as Fox and, and Drudge and, and Rush Limbaugh proved, one way to be very profitable is to just link yourself to a political faction and feed them that everything what they want to hear all the time and never tell them anything that might unsettle or disturb them. And the New York Times and the ACLU and MSNBC and CNN realize that you can do that same thing with great financial success by attaching yourself to the liberal faction and even with Trump gone, I don't expect them to even consider not doing it anymore because that's where their profitability model lies. If you look systematically at liberal democracies, uh, there are a whole bunch of different power, power points. And for them to retain some element of public trust, they have to operate with some degree of attachment to neutral principles. It seems that's particularly true of law enforcement. It's, view, it's, it's, it's important for the courts. It's also important for political parties not to be completely shameless in jettisoning every principle they had before for partisan mm -hmm. reasons. And what I always felt was particularly dangerous about Trump, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with about some of the things that he said and did and wanted to do, but part of what I was concerned with is his behavior would prompt a response from these other institutions that would actually delegitimize them in the long run and make liberal democracy harder. In other words, it was important to oppose Trump, but it was important also not to marshal every resource around an anti-Trump uh, vendetta, uh, at least the appearance of one too, which I think remains his strongest point. And the reason why he's still politically salient is because people say, well, well we saw the courts massively overreach on questions like immigration. We've, we've seen pushback on the Russia stuff that was clearly way over the top. Um, uh, and they've been delegitimized not as much as Trump, but, but, but have, a, have, have, have lost the confidence of a, a very large swath of the country. That also includes the media, of course, who were involved in this as well. And we see in the polling, at least, that trust in media is at rock bottom at this point. And I'm not surprised, to be honest, because I can't see anymore. I don't trust. 
and I've always read the New York Times. I, I, it's an incredibly important institution, but I don't trust it anymore. I just don't. I don't trust what's coming from the. Why not? Why not? Because I see these news stories being pitched in such a way. I'm not stupid to see that some points of view or some ways of looking at reality are entirely excluded from the narrative. Um, I'll give just one time. And what do you think causes that? What do you think causes that? Ideology, essentially. I mean, the desire, um, you know, for example, the, the, the concern, which is completely justified, even though it's quite small, actually, number, uh, with anti-Asian violence and the assumption that na white nationalists are against this. If you go and actually look and see the incidents, these are not white nationalists beating up Asians because they have the China flu. It's not that. It's something much more complicated and, and different. It's so obviously not that, but this, that, I'm so glad you raised that. Like, you know, I talk a lot to, I have friends in, in journalism, people like Lee Fong, mm -hmm. who is Chinese American, and Leighton Woodhouse, who is half Asian, who both who live in San Francisco, where a lot of this anti-Asian violence first began. So I've been following this story for a long time. And now it's in New York as well. Obviously, in New York, I think it's like 92% of the people voted for Joe Biden and something like 8% of the people voted for Donald Trump. So the idea that like people in New York are suddenly on this like anti-Asian violence kick because of something Donald Trump said when virtually nobody in New York listens to him or cares about anything he says is facially preposterous. Mm -hmm. And if you read, I, I, I defy anybody to go read accounts in liberal media outlets like the New York Times or the Atlantic or MSNBC about anti-Asian violence, which definitely is increasing in very brutal ways. And see if you can find a single clear declarative sentence about who's doing it and why. I know. That's what I'm talking it about. Just, they that, won't talk about it. I have to go and watch the videos. I have to go and watch the, read the local papers to see exactly what is happening. The same is also true, by the way. Of a, of, of a really, I mean, extraordinary increase in attacks on Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews in New York, who are now by far uh, the population most likely to be targeted uh, for abuse and violence. And yet that, too, is sort of framed in this incredibly cramped way. So no one could possibly say that, obviously, the race or the culture of the people attacking them are not straight out of, um, you know, January 6th in, in insurrection. Not at all. Um, but again, it's just the sense that you have a narrative, you look at reality, it complicates the narrative, it makes it more difficult to understand, and they just refuse to put it in it. For example, and this is another issue we may have some disagreements on, but the trans issue. I just, you can read the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, and, and basically the story is a whole bunch of bigots have decided because they hate people to stop these uh, some of the implications of some of the executive orders and indeed proposed uh, legislative changes. But in fact, you know, when you actually look at it, most people don't have any objection to trans people. They do have a couple of little points, which is about, do you want to be in an open locker room and see someone with, gender, with genitalia of a different gender? Or uh, do you think that a 17-year-old just transitioned a trans girl uh, can easily beat a regular or non-trans, a cis girl, to call it, uh, uh, in track. And isn't there a question there that we have to have to judge? It's, it's not. In, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do know or if like you don't raise age, the question. At what age is a person capable of making decisions to have irreversible 
hormonal therapies, or even more, you know, to the point, irreversible anatomically altering surgeries designed to reassign their birth gender. It's, it's the fact that, I mean, I'll tell you like when I really started to become interested, I like barely have ever talked about trans issues before. My instinct is to support the trans agenda. My instinct without, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about it because I identify with it empathetically because there's obviously a similarity, not Mm -hmm. an identical trajectory, but a similarity between being gay and wanting your identity respected and the society and laws to honor that and let you live freely. I also just in general, philosophically believe that society in general should not interfere in individuals' lives and should, in fact, do the opposite, which is encourage and empower them to be self-actualized, however they define it, obviously, to the extent that it doesn't harm others or infringe on us. So my instinct has always been, just to the extent I thought about trans issues, to be supportive of that agenda. Me too. I remember I've never even, I remember I never even had a, yeah, I know. a thought about opposing anything pro-trans because it's self-evident to me that trans people exist they have they're unbelievable they have incredibly tough issues to deal with in their lives and discrimination against them is simply repellent and repulsive so that's where i start from i I thought i would be able to support every single one but when i'm asked at this point to just say there is absolutely no difference between a trans man and a man who's never been anything but a man i just can't say it i'm sorry i can't it's not true well, I'll tell you, Andrew, the thing that really alarmed me was, so, you know, Martina Navratilova, yeah. I think we've talked about this before, yeah. the Czech tennis star was like one of my childhood heroes. Yeah, I was going to do a film about her. She since turned into this like totally dreary resistance normie liberal whose politics are shit and that ruined our relationship. <laughs> but anyway, she was still my childhood hero because she was so defiant and so transgressive and like such an important pioneer in so many ways. And like one of the things she pioneered was women's sports. Yeah. Like that rivalry that she had with Chris Everett starting in the mid-70s, going all the way to the end of the 80s, was like probably the greatest sports rivalry of the 20th century. It exploded women's sports, uh, women's tennis, specifically women's sports generally. It's why the Williams sisters make, you know, 20, 30, 50 million dollars a year on a global stars and Maria Sharapova, all of that. She was incredibly political and important in that cause. So women's sports, like she has, that's one of part of her legacy, right? Professional women's sports, the ability for women athletes to compete and to make a really good living if they excel and are, 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 you know, train their whole lives. She saw a picture of a trans woman who was preoperative, who was much larger in height and muscle mass than the two cis women who she had just defeated in the cycling race. And the, the, the trans woman was kind of hovering over the two cis women. And Martina, with incredibly good faith, just simply ask the question, hey, I'm just wondering, like, is all you need to do to enter a woman's sporting competition and win the prizes and the trophies from the cis woman is just declare that you're a woman? Like, you don't even have to have surgery. You don't have to have anything. You can just say you're a woman. You get to enter, win all their money and the prizes, and then just go be a man again and marry a woman and have children? Or is there something more required? For asking that question, she got expelled from multiple LGBT sporting associations, Martina fucking Navratilova, who in 1984, I remember this, I was like 16 at the time, had hired a trans woman as her coach yes. and took her all around the world and put her on television, Renee Richards. Yes. And uh, the, probably the most you know, visible to, like, trans nobody... person in the world at that point. Uh, and, and, and by f- uh, for sure. And Martina's yeah. obvious and, champion of this person and obviously her incredible success was part of the idea that this person is anti-trans or transphobic 
is or just, bigoted or whatever. It's just awful. It's just completely wrong. I have to say, uh, you know, I could there are legitimate disagreements you can have with J.K. Rowling, but the idea she's a fucking anti-trans bigot and hates trans people is just self-evidently bullshit. And and I just don't see where this is coming from. Why you can't since you have such a good argument in the first place. I mean, that's what it seems to me. It's a very good argument for trans rights. It's much better than the opponents. And if you were to argue, it seems to me, look, yes, there are probably going to be some injustices in the sense of certainly in high school athletics or whatever. Yeah. But you know what? We, we, in the balance between the injustice against cis girls and the inclusion of trans girls, we're going to pick the inclusion for trans girls. That is an honest position, and I respect it. But they refuse to concede the first premise, which I think makes them much less credible overall. Let me ask you this, Andrew, because I've been thinking about that, obviously, because I tipped my, my I, I stuck my toe into yeah, the- Yeah, you got, tr you got uh, dragged all over the place for saying some obviously it's, right, simple it's fine. things. It's not the first time, won't be the last. Um, but so I've been thinking about it for like a week or so. This is, you know, and I did a video about it, and this is one of the things I thought. Um, having gone through and lived through and worked on the cause of gay equality, not nearly to the extent that you did, you were like, you know, to this day, if somebody says like, why do you still talk to Andrew Sullivan? He says this and believes this. I say, look, he was a fucking pioneer in the 1980s arguing for gay marriage when nobody was. One of the most important changes that has improved the lives of millions of people. But you were in the trenches with it. I it became an important part for me too. I wasn't a writer then. I didn't have a platform. But you know, like I said, it, it was part of my identity. The thing that, I remember so much in so many ways is that I would look for opportunities to be able to dialogue with people mm -hmm. who had misconceptions mm -hmm. about what it meant to be gay and what, about what our lives were, because in there lied the opportunity to be able to change minds, yes. which is ultimately why the gay movement won, just simply one person after the next coming out to them, breaking down the demonization, persuading people that the things they thought weren't true. I loved it when I had the opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean if there was some hardened bigot screaming faggot at me and you're immoral and you burn in hell and you're a pervert, you know, obviously in those cases, you just kind of walk away. Well, but sometimes, general, but sometimes engaging, not. I went to, I went to fundamentalist yeah. churches. I remember one I went to in Idaho, which is about as hardcore as you could get. Like about a thousand people showed up um, from the church. And uh, I debated the question of marriage equality. And uh, you know, at the very beginning of the debate, they said, hands up everyone who is opposing to it. And, and literally everyone but one person put up their hands. And at the end of the debate, they also did that. And everyone but maybe five or 10 of them put their hands up. So I figured those five or 10 were worth the trip. <laughs> I mean, you, you, and just to expose people to these ideas and arguments. I went to Notre Dame, for fuck's sake. Yeah, you know? maybe you broke down other people's like hardened resistance so they weren't ready to get on board. But... So this is what I don't understand. So like if you like we've looked for ways to convert people from enemies or even like doubters into supporters and allies by persuading them, by being inviting, by saying, let's sit down and talk. If you go to a trans person or the like trans movement in general, I don't want to generalize. There's obviously lots of differences, but in general, the political face that they're showing is if you come and say, hey, look, I'm totally on board completely with like 85 percent of what you want. I have doubts about this other 15%. I don't even think I have doubts about 15%, more like five or 10. But like, let's say 15. You'll be immediately denounced as a transphobe if you identify what those doubts are yeah. as a bigot and a transphobe. Yep. There's no effort to say, listen, here's why 
let's sit down and let's let's talk about why you're thinking about this incorrectly. And I also think, you know, there is there is uh it's it's simply true. It's not fair that the tiny minorities with different kinds of lives and, and, and paths through life have to explain themselves. It wasn't fair to ask gay people to suddenly open themselves up and say things to other people to persuade them or to show them what it was like to be gay. No, but it was necessary. And by doing it, you showed you respected your opponents and that succeeded. That's the other thing I can't believe is that it was an incredibly successful civil rights act. Uh, the, the marriage equality. Mm -hmm. And yet every single thing we learned how to change people's minds back then have been thrown out the window so that when you go today and they say, well, you go do the work, you read the book, and then you come back and see if, if you're okay. In, in a, such a hostile and angry way um, that, that, is, that, that doesn't give people any space to grow or to change or to think. Let me pivot to this question, which is... Pivot. Uh, what in your life have you changed your mind about the most over your career? What, what, what did you come across that made you reassess uh, previous convictions? Well, so when I first started writing about politics in 2005, I hadn't really paid a ton of attention to politics before. I was working on constitutional law issues. I cared a lot about that, but I never really cared much in the 90s about the Republican-Democrat fights between Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and Paula Jones and Monica Lewinsky or any of that. And I only started really paying attention after 9-11. So my political sense of the world about who, what the United States was, what its role in the world, came from like reading the New York Times every morning, reading The Atlantic, reading The New Yorker. I never heard from Noam Chomsky. I saw manufacturing consent in college and never paid attention again. I never heard any dissident voices on the left or the right. I just, that was the mainstream views to which I which I consumed and didn't really have a lot of time to critically evaluate and believe they were true. And that's why when I first started writing about politics, it was very much from this perspective of like, United States is a basically good country that does basically good things in the world, wants to spread its values, go to war with repressive regimes. I thought the Democratic Party was more or less a party with which I identified and that to the extent it didn't do the things that I thought it should do, it was just because it was like, hadn't found the political courage to do it. They really wanted to do good things. They just were too scared of losing elections because of McGovern and Dukakis. And as I started paying attention a lot more to politics, I realized that pretty much everything I thought about the world was just wrong. It was like the byproduct. It wasn't the byproduct of critical thought. It was the byproduct of propaganda. And so I kind of tore it all down and rebuilt it from scratch. And when doing so, I some of the things I kept, I realized, okay, those things I used to think were more or less basically true. But so much of what I thought about other countries, about how power is distributed in the United States, about how political change happens, I've changed my mind completely. And then even since then, you know, I've changed my mind a lot about um, what the American right is, what the American left is. I think these terms have often obfuscated more than they've illuminated. I think there's a lot more in common between ordinary people on both sides of the political spectrum mm -hmm. than I ever once previously realized. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've undergone a lot of changes. Um, and if I didn't, I think I'd be pretty worthless, right? Like that's what it means to be human is to I would hope so. I would hope so. Things. I mean, but there are some principles that you can retained through your life. I think your general view of, of what journalism is has been pretty consistent from my from where I'm sitting. Um, 
But uh, let me press you a little bit on this. Um, it, it, you said you, you used to believe the United States was a basically good country. I still believe the United States is a basically good country um, compared to the alternatives. Uh, uh, why am I wrong about that? Is there, a, is there a country that seems to better uphold the principles you believe in? I think the United States is a good country for those who live within it in the sense that it provides more free speech rights than just about anywhere else, which I think is an incredibly valuable thing that can't just be dismissed away. I think it provides a good amount of press freedoms, not as much as it once did, but compared to most countries, a good, healthy amount of press freedoms, which is critically important. I think it still provides basic due process, which is extremely important. So I think from the perspective of living in the United States, from the perspective of civil liberties and civic rights, the United States is a very, very good country to live in. Um, I have a lot of respect for its history, for the things it's accomplished, for the founding documents. Um, obviously, I have a lot of criticisms of how wealth is distributed, of how the middle class has been allowed to disappear, um, how the you know, it's. I think it's becoming rapidly an oligarchy, but there's still a lot I really respect about the United States in terms of its domestic fabric. What I have really soured upon is the role the United States plays in the world. Um, you know, when we just saw with this recent bombing of Syria on the 33rd day of Joe Biden's presidency, one of the things I learned, Andrew, from like not living in the United States, from living in Brazil, where I've lived for 2005, is just how aberrational and rogue it is to wake up and just have it be totally normal that your government has announced that it just bombed some other country with whom you're not at war. Yeah. And you can say, well, look, that's because the United States is a sole superpower. By doing that, it like preserves a global stability. I think I used to think that I no longer do. I think it's entirely for not just not even U.S. interest in the sake of in, the, in terms of like, I don't think the average American benefits because Syria is bombed. I think a very tiny sector of the society benefits from being in a posture of endless war that is very actually destabilizing. You know, we've overturned democratic governments around the world, bombed tons of countries, killed huge numbers of people. Those things I don't think are good. Did and that's you, a big part of what it means to, to, to think about the United States. Uh, Trump was a kind of weird mix here, wasn't he? Because He's not exactly an enlightened human being, um, to say the least. Uh, but his view of foreign countries was, uh, you know, if you have to bomb them every now and again, then fine. But basically, we need to look after ourselves. Um, and it seems to me that you had, uh, with all your qualifications, obviously, but you have that basic posture, the United States should stick to its own business, is pretty consonant with your point of view. Um, and certainly yeah. not consonant with the sort of, you know, uh, Samantha Power, uh, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, 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 certainly um, Anthony Blinken view of the world. Um, and I obviously had a, a sort of grueling uh, lesson in all of this, in which I, I, I don't believe that over the last 20 years, the United States has actually helped stability in the world. I think it's been a destabilizing influence. And, and what are the odds? You know, Trump came in saying we're going to get out of Afghanistan. We still have not gotten out of Afghanistan. Is there any, do you think we'll ever be, we'll ever leave? I mean, currently I'm reading pieces like Dexter, Fil Dexter Filkins, he's a fantastic reporter uh, on Afghanistan and the New Yorker. 
it looks as the minute we the minute we leave, there's going to be a civil war and probably a Taliban takeover again. I mean, and that will be enough, won't it, for Biden to keep some kind of uh, troops in there for his entire term in office? Well, th- but this is the thing, you know, um, I so first of all, I do want to make a point about Trump, which is, you know, when he was campaigning, he did promise that he was going to bomb the shit out of the terrorists. Yeah but also campaigned against new wars. And he pretty much kept his word. I mean, he did come into office. He had inherited a bombing campaign in Iraq and Syria that was basically against ISIS and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. And he did what he said, which is he escalated the bombing, loosened the the rules of engagement, caused more civilian deaths because the bombing was more indiscriminate. But at the same time, more or less, ISIS did end during the Trump presidency. And he didn't start a new war. He did not. There was no country where the United States started a war that it was not in previously, which is something that you cannot say for any president since at least Jimmy Carter, and maybe even you'd have to go back earlier, depending on the account that. That, to me, seems like a big deal. The other thing is about Afghanistan. I watched, Andrew, like, sometimes, you know, if you just watch the, like, what happens in the bowels of Congress, it's where you really learn the reality of what's going on. Trump, in June of 2020, unveiled a plan to withdraw troops both from Germany, I think 35%, and Afghanistan, the full drawdown by the end of the year. And the House Armed Services Committee, dominated by pro-war Democrats, aligned with the neocons led by Liz Cheney, who was on that committee. And you had this anti-war coalition, which was like Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard on the left, and then like MAGA people like Matt Gates on the right, who were saying, it's time to pull troops back from Germany. We don't need them anymore. The original purpose was to stop Soviet incursions into Western Europe. The Soviets... Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. And to the extent we're supposed to check Russia, Russia had no problem invading Crimea while these troops were there. Those troops did nothing to stop them. Mm. No one thinks Russia is going to invade Western Europe. And then also, you know, they were saying it's time for the Afghanistan war to end. I mean, we're not doing much to stop the Taliban by being there. And at some point, we're going to have to come home. And they got steamrolled by this pro-war Democratic, pro-war Republican coalition that prevented Trump from withdrawing troops by saying that any efforts to withdraw troops will be defunded. And I think that's why when I talk about, you know, this kind of left-right dichotomy, so often it doesn't really hold water anymore. I mean, if you look at, you know, who's against big tech monopolies, is that a left or a right-wing position? It's kind of both. If you look at who is angry about free trade, is that a left or a right-wing position? It's kind of both. If you look at ending endless wars. That's something Ron Paul talked about before Trump and demonstrated a lot of support for in the Republican Party. And then Trump followed him up by doing the same. So, you know, I think that there are these new coalitions that people need to be open to. And to get to your question earlier about why I go into Carlson, in part, it's because I believe in that. Like, I want to, I don't want to just be confined to talking to people on the left, because I think you'll never form a majority for anything. No, and you know, in you some ways, to... I think when I look back, given my own political philosophy and thinking about uh, conservatism over the year, I realized that, in fact, there, that the conservatism would have, if I had internalized it properly and hadn't been caught up in neoconservative thought, which is not conservative thought, but let's say conservative thought, I would never have supported the Iraq war. Just the, the unknowables, the, the unbelievable unpredictability of what would happen. The fallibility of Why our... do you think you did? Like, why do you think... Was it just getting swept up in the... Yes. Anger about 9-11 yes. and the passion of the yes. moment. I was genuinely, deeply horrified by what happened in New York. And 
uh, I think everybody was traumatized to some extent. And I think trauma affects your judgment of things. And I'd also been marinated for a decade and a half in neoconservative ideology. So I knew all the arguments already, it's, it, and most people did. Yeah, you were with Marty Peretz yeah. and Charles Krauthammer yeah. and all those New Republic boys. Yeah, and also, but more than Charles, I mean, whose you know, position was always, but also all the liberal Zionists and the, the liberal uh, yeah. internationalists uh, who were also- Yeah, the liberal hawks. Uh, Definitely made the difference. Al Gore, for God's sake. Um, uh, so, Tom Friedman, everybody, John Shade, all those people. The New York yeah. Times, the Washington Post, but also sixty percent of the American public. I think more than sixty percent at some right. point. So, so uh, anyway, I understand why, in fact, that was not some knee-jerk leftism, and I think I was also. You know, I was trapped in that binary left-right thing where all the people I didn't like for other reasons <laughs> seemed to be on the other side. And so I, I got tribalized. And that's another thing I've tried to fight mm -hmm. against in my life since. I want to pivot at the end of this just to ask you about another question, which I've grappled, wrestled with myself. And I just, I don't think I've done my best on it. And that is the question of the rights of animals, which does seem to me to be an incredibly important issue. I think if one were to imagine a hundred years time, people would look back and say, how did they do that? How on earth did they Me create too. these torture camps, uh, these unbelievably horrific concentration camps for animals? We're treating them as if they were inanimate objects in the most horrifying mm -hmm. way. What is the, where did, where does your, convi my conviction comes from be perfectly honest, uh, uh, Christianity. I mean, I, I, I just think humans uh, have power and over other creatures, and how we use that power is necessary. I'm not a vegetarian. I do. I don't. I don't really care uh, uh, about eating meat. I think humans historically have always done so, but did so in a fair match, did so by hunting, did so in ways that also took care of the animals. Or family farming, where there was like humane treatment of the animals yeah. as 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 they lived. But obviously that has, you know, I, 20th century has just been a nightmare and it's continuing. And, and, but I, here's my question really, is how do we talk about this better? Because how do we persuade people better? I mean, how do we bring this? I know that we need to have more, video more proof of the the torture and the unbelievable cruelty in these places but it, it came with like the environment i just never get breakthrough with people it never feels interesting to them yeah so first of all i think it's really important and i think people who are vegans or vegetarians or devoted to the animal rights cause have learned this lesson for sure not all of them but most that just like we were talking about the trans issues before if you want to convince people to change how they think and behave, you need to make it inviting and not off-putting and alienating. You need to make people feel like they're welcomed and not denounced and condemned. So any kind of like attempt to make meat eaters or people who are not on board feel unethical or immoral is just a losing strategy from the start. Um, I think one of the most important things is and it's like a gateway is how much people now, especially with society not providing the kind of psychological fulfillment that we need, as you, what you see is a great increase in the number of people, the kinds of people 
who now have dogs as a really important part of their life and who cherish their their dogs or cats, their pets. Mm-hmm. And I remember like two years ago, there or maybe a year ago, there was this horrific story of this homeless dog who used to wait outside this grocery store in Brazil because people would give him food on the way out because that's how he survived. And the security guard for this uh, supermarket one day just like was irritated by his barking and so beat him until he was dead. And there was like indignation for, I mean, it was like the lead story in Brazil for more than a week. The guy got fired. He was like, had to leave his home. He was being threatened. I was like, what is it? Why is it that we get so outraged by the terrible death of a dog but we don't feel that way about the multi-year torture of other animals like cows and chickens and especially pigs who are probably more intelligent and more emotionally complicated than dogs and are at least as much social creatures as dogs are who suffer as much who love as much i think that's one of the questions that we have to start making people answer is why is it that you believe this one species of animals deserves so much respect and care and love and these others are worthless just it's not that not even that you can kill them you can breed them into nothing but pure torture for years with no humanitarian concern for these sentient animals at all i think that's like dogs are kind of a gateway into getting people to think about it and the other thing i think is important is it's kind of like war. You know how, like, if the United States has wars, we almost never see the victims, right? Like, have you seen pictures of the people who died in the Syria bombing? I haven't. I doubt we ever will. We'll probably never know their names. We won't know their stories. If there's innocent people who die, we'll never see their grieving mother. It's They keep it hidden, the carnage, because that's the way that you can kind of look the other way and allow it to happen. And it's the same thing with the, this industry, the 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 the, the horrific barbaric, savage, inhumane treatment of these animals by the billions is something we don't see. And most people don't want to see it. Like my instinct as a journalist when I first started reporting on it was to turn away. Even now I have trouble seeing these videos. So you have to find a way to kind of ease people into realizing the reality of what they're supporting. And they don't have to make radical changes in their life. Like I, the first thing I did was just give up pork. I stopped eating bacon and hot dogs and anything pig related for like a year until I gave up meat there's now meat you know burger alternatives there's laboratory grown meat that will allow you to consume meat without slaughtering and torturing animals i think it's just like anything else andrew it's an education campaign to get people to pay attention to the reality of what they're supporting to think not because it's bashed into their head or they're coerced but looking into their conscience why it's wrong and then getting themselves incrementally without a lot of pressure and badgering to change their behavior and thought. I agree with you. I think that the fact that human beings historically always had uh, daily, hourly sometimes interaction with other animals in a way before the industrial era definitely created a better balance, I think, between, between uh, animals and humans. And, and, and the only animals we're really in touch with are domestic animals, most people these days. Right. So that's the only analogy we really have. Um, the pig thing just completely renders me distraught uh, because precisely uh, the, the, the emotional capacity of these animals, that they know they, they can be traumatized, terrorized uh, in ways that are unspeakable. Uh, when, you, when you think of a, let's think of a whole factory full of beagles 
being treated that way. I mean, beagles are treated horribly in, in testing and industrial testing, but uh, that, that, that really gets me. But the other thing I think works a little bit is technology. You know, I, it seems to me, for example, like mm -hmm. if creating uh, meat that's really persuasively meat or chicken that's really persuasively chicken, I've switched to all uh, sort of non-pork pork, like non-pork sausages, which is, you can do that. Yeah. Um, I'm English, I can't give up sausages. No gay jokes, please. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, that... That's a step, but I, I think and similarly with the with the epidemic, in some ways, the only thing that's going to resolve this in the end is going to be technology, the vaccines. Similarly, I think with climate change, the only thing that's really going to change this is a technological breakthrough or, uh, to my mind, uh, uh, a, 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 a more investment in nuclear energy as a complement to, not instead of, but as a complement to, because that's a technology we already have, which is carbon neutral uh it does not actually put more carbon and and keeps us going so I, I think those are the ways to persuade people um but uh and you're right it's amazing what media covers up we don't see we've barely ever seen people dying of covid we have half a million people went through pretty awful deaths we don't we have no almost no american except for those who've had to witness it themselves have any understanding of how hideous that that death is because we hide it we hide the victims of war we hide the the the, the animal concentration camp uh victims uh it's amazing or even today for example this whole kind of silly dr seuss uh controversy I, it's all about these images which are apparently racist i can't fucking find them i mean they're, they have these stories <laughs> telling you these unbelievably racist images well can we maybe show them I mean, and, and again, it's it's it feels like the Danish cartoon. I just caught up on the Mr. Potato Head gender <laughs> controversy, so I have not yet been informed of the racist I mean, Dr. Seuss like it's, issue. It's just I, the other thing is, I'll be honest. I don't understand. I heard, I read, God, that awful person. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. The, the writer, anyway, Farhad Manju, who was going on about the prison of gender, the prison of sex, as if. Being one or the other sexes is somehow kind of, I, know, I agree there's a prison in some ways of, of, of forcing people to exhibit and demonstrate and display their sex in certain conventional ways, all of which I hope to see and believe in disrupting. But there's nothing wrong with being a man and being happy to be a man, uh, similarly with being a woman and happy to be a woman. There's nothing this, we're making we're making our very natures problematic to us. They don't have to be. You can arrange for the rights of others and toleration of others without somehow denying your own validity, denying your own uh, nature. Uh, and coming to terms with that, I must say, this is also how I feel about the gay stuff. It's is that look, it's 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 always going to be hard for gay kids harder than straight kids to figure out who they are for obvious reason they're very we're a very relatively small minority and it takes time but the key thing is to tell people to believe in themselves in their bodies in their desires in their nature um and to be able to dust off hatred and criticism I mean, it's like that old eleanor roosevelt statement no one can make you feel inferior without your consent and so much of our culture is de dedicated to stopping people making other people feel inferior, which is fine. 
But it's much more effective to say, stop feeling it, overcome this, treat them with bemusement, contempt, or indifference. Their bigotry is their own problem insofar as it's not going to affect you. How do you, how would you respond to those thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, actually, I haven't quite thought about that that way before, but, you know, I, I think it's a really good way of looking at things. You know, there's a kind of saying that I've heard in various uh, places, which is you can't control what happens in the world, but you can control how you react to yeah. it. You, know, you can control whether you're going to be angry about it or scared of it or um, disgusted by it or distracted by it. You can control that. You can't control what the world does. And I think, you know, just going again with the experience of, of growing up gay in a study where it was much more hostile, obviously, than it is now um, in most sectors, still hostile in pockets. Um, I think that is one of the things that most gay people who ended up successfully navigating the society learned how to do, which is you reach the point where you realize that there's actually nothing wrong with you. And then you just accept the fact that there are still people who haven't gotten to that point, but you don't let the fact that they don't see that bother you or anger you. You go and live your life freely and in a, as fulfilled a manner as possible. And it doesn't really matter if other people don't accept it or don't see it for themselves. It matters that you have your full legal rights and your full political rights. But beyond that, you can't control what other people think. I think you're right that there is this kind of like dissatisfaction. There's like a kind of greed to movements, which is it's not enough that you kind of leave us alone, that you honor and respect what we've decided. You have to affirm constantly our worth and value. Otherwise, we're being harmed by your failure to do so. It's like very kind of manipulative, very coercive in terms of its attempt to get you to say and believe things as though you're harming them if you don't, yes. that I think is quite new and quite different. It is. And it, it's, it, it's, it's, I think the, I mean, I, I, one of the reasons is that deep down, I really am a liberal in the old sense of the word. I just don't like controlling other people's lives. I'm happy to persuade them and engage with them. Um, but at some level, I don't want that responsibility for other people's lives. It's hard enough to figure out my own. And, and, uh, uh, and I think also some of this is partly a misplaced form of religion in as much as all the worst aspects of religion, which is proselytism and judgmentalism and having a fixed view of what the world should be and then setting about berating anybody who doesn't live up to it or insisting that they have this conversion experience or they're not really living their life that has become politicized in a way that that some of this social justice, as it were, is really about proselytism and really about forcing or trying to force or coerce people into acting and believing things that they don't want to act like and don't really believe in. And I, I just, I just don't want to live in a society like that. I'd rather live. But you know, I think, but I, but but I think that if you think about it, I think you're right, and I think that makes sense. Though that's to be expected. If you you know, if you have a very secular society, which most of the West is, and then you that means that people aren't getting spiritual f fulfillment or a sense of higher purpose through religion, and you don't really have small communities anymore where people, everyone knows each other, so you don't have that, like, that tight community, you don't really have labor unions anymore, you don't have bowling leagues, we're all living in these huge industrialized cities, atomized from one another, talking to each other through the computer screen, obviously the pandemic 
has made it vastly worse. If you look at all the mental health data, you know, you just see it. People are having skyrocketing rates of depression and mental health pathologies and addiction and alcoholism and suicide because obviously the society isn't providing them what they need. Right. And in that gap, in that breach, they start seeking that fulfillment from politics. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that politics becomes religionized when there's no spirituality anywhere else. And I think that's also part of why our politics is so angry and so ugly because the people in the society feel so deprived for good reason, right? They're all living at home until they're 30 or more. They can't start families because they don't have the financial capability. They're buried by debt. So I think all of this shapes our politics in, in ways that are almost kind of to be expected. What I find fascinating is that uh, the power of encountering this kind of alienation and depression of using psychedelics uh, is probably all the greater for the fact that our society, as it is constituted, really militates against spirituality, militates against silence, militates against perspective, militates against calm. And when people experiencing that chemically, it just feels like a whole new world to them. Um, and I think our friend, our mutual friend, Johan Hari, uh, uh, who's writing on depression, I think has been terrific, uh, gets this. And addiction. And addiction. It's, it's yeah, not addiction. your, yeah. it, it's the society that's the, that's the problem, not you. Um, well, Glenn, anyway. I just want to thank you for coming on. Um, I know many people think it's very strange that you and I are friends, and uh, uh, but I don't, and <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to know you. And <laughs> thank you for coming on and, and chatting, and I and and keep going. Yeah, you know, Andrew. Before I began writing about uh, politics, I, I really admired you for what you did. I didn't agree with everything you said, but I have a lot of admiration for just you being in the trenches for so long. It meant a lot to me, kind of as a gay man growing up. So thank you for that. I'm glad we have developed this friendship as well. And uh, it was great talking to you. Great, Glenn. My best to David Bye, and Andrew. the entire gang. All right, thank and you. And all the dogs. Okay, great. Okay, bye. <laughs>